Good, well, warm welcome. Welcome particularly to uh, Julie and Lisa who've come across from uh, Victoria Park Baptist. Um, hi, Rob. Good. Um, well, I thought we'd start in a similar sort of vein to the way we started last, uh, last time, um, by singing together. Um, and the song I've chosen is Break Thou the Bread of Life, which I hope we all know, but it just seems like a good place to start saying, um, Lord, I want to come um, to sit under your word. I want you to break your word open to me. I want your spirit to uh, speak to me and reveal your truth to me. So um, shall we stand to sing? Can you put it up, Louisa? We stand to sing that. We know this, don't we? Yeah, good. <clears throat> Hang on. off by mopping up a couple of things that cropped up after last week's session. Um, just take two or three minutes to, to uh, mop those up and then we'll move on. 
Um, I was asked on the way out, does God really like blood? Which I guess is a question I deserved, really, from what I'd said. Um, And I think if I had to answer that question in sort of two or three sentences, I would say that um, God speaks to us in language we can understand. And he continues to speak to us in language we can understand. Um, But what we see through scripture is God speaking in the language that the people of those days could understand. So I think when... um, when we see Isaiah in that powerful passage that we saw last time, we see Isaiah talking about um, God reveling in the blood of his enemies. I, I mean, you know, just, as, just as when we see um, the prophets talking about God as if he has ears and hands and feet, um, you know, we're, we're seeing God commute, lisping to us um, in language that will hopefully resonate with at least with the people of those days, and we have to try and think ourselves back into that time. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, There's a lot more we could say about that, really. Um, Dave Winfield asked me um, whether or or commented that he he felt quite uncomfortable with some of the things that I've been saying, because um, when we draw parallels between creation and the Exodus and then with Jericho, the implication of that is that this is all allegory. Um, And I certainly didn't mean to imply that at all. Um, I don't think, I I think that you can lose a li- use a literary way of describing a historical event um, which doesn't in any way undermine the claim to historicity of that event. So I didn't mean to imply that was allegory. Um, I mean, obviously, some of the people who, who write this sort of thing would think it was allegory, and some wouldn't. And I don't think um, it needs to stand or fall on that idea of these parallels coming through. Um, just as the way that, for example, King David um, you know, is, is, a, is, a, is a shadow of Jesus doesn't mean that King David was allegorical, for example. And finally, somebody asked me about the etymology of the word cherem. So here's a little bit of, about cherem, since you asked. On the next slide, please, Louisa. Okay, so the first incidence we have of the word cherem comes from the Akkadian, which I know we're all fluent in, for charemtu, which means prostitute, um, and probably related to an earlier word, something to do with being cloistered and being set aside, as it were. And it became a designation for um, persons or things which were proscribed. Um, as I think I mentioned last week, that's where we get the Arabic word haram, uh, meaning a sacred enclosure, and hence our word harim. Um, now, it's interesting to compare that with the word kadesh. Now, kadesh in Hebrew, as Nicola knows, means um, holy. Um, and that, now this relates back also to an Akkadian word meaning sacred prostitute, also a cultic prostitute. That's then found in the Ugaritic, which is the sort of Canaanite uh, language, the sort of Philistine language, um, which would relate to the priesthood, and then becomes in in Hebrew um, Kadesh, which means holy. And it's very interesting that these words, which have very similar origins, come to mean something which is, um, well, which is harem, which is designated for destruction, which is an abomination, and something which is holy. You know, we talk about um, the holy of holies in the Old Testament is, is the Kadesh, Kadesh um, I wish I hadn't started that, Kadesh Kadeshim, which is the holy of holies, the most holy place. And it's interesting just to think about that, and it does relate to some of the stuff we said last week and a little bit about what we're going to come on to later. If you think about, I mean, we, we think about the word, think about the sense of defiled and the sense of holy as being absolute polar opposites. But if we think about them as something which is prescribed, something which we may not approach, we may not touch, we can see that you can see that, there's, that they're not quite as opposite as we might think in some ways. Now, just hold that thought because 
I hope you'll see why it's relevant a bit later on. Um, yeah, I think that's what we all wanted to say about that. Is that okay? Just picking up a few things from last week. Ellen, can I just make mm. one point? Maybe it's wildly simple, but it's something about the first God-like blood. He asked for blood sacrifices right from the beginning of time. Did that imply or not imply, or was it something totally different about God-like and blood? I mean, he wanted to see the blood of the animals on their hands right through the scripture up to the time of Jesus Christ and being sacrificed. There's, there's, a, there's, an, there's an ambivalence about it, though, isn't there? Because, of course, you've got Isaiah saying, actually, I, you know, I can't stand your sacrifices. And also, there's a sense of sac- those sacrifices being unacceptable. But there's also a sense of, you know, I never really wanted that, he says, didn't he? You're a bloody, I, I, you know, that's not what I really, really want. What I really want is an upright heart. So, there, yes, I mean, but there is an ambivalence about it as well. Yeah, I think there's so much more we could say about that. Um, just, just a very brief reminder, um, we've gone to the next slide, of where we went last time. Um, we looked at three of the five different models for Harem that we're going to talk about. The first one, um, which John Calvin w- would, you know, was a proponent of, but many, many people have, have talked about. Harem is judgment on the unrighteous peoples around Israel, and Israel is the agent of God's judgment. Susan Nidditch, if you remember, she, um, as well as talking about judgment, she talks about um, sacrifice, harem as sacrifice. And then Philip Stern, who talks about this idea of harem being a clearing of the ground, a, uh, a suppression of chaos, a sort of a reenactment of creation, of, of, the, of the creative act, a sort of um, a participation and, and a, re, yeah, a reenactment of, of, what's, um, of, of that first creative act of God's. That's where we were last week. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Good. Okay. <clears throat> Two more to look at this week, and then I'm going to try and uh, put things together a little bit. So first of all, we're going to look at, briefly at um, the work of René Girard. Has anyone read, here read any of René Girard's work? I'm really relieved about that. <laughs> okay. René Girard, um, I think he's still alive. I'm pretty sure he's still alive. And uh, he's, he's an anthropologist, not a theologian, and it's worth bearing that in mind. Um, but for, for Girard, the root of all evil in human society, and, and he, he comes to this by studying primitive peoples um, and, then, and then trying to see the common links. And he says that the root of all evil in a human society is really the breach of the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. <coughs> Excuse me. And he thinks that all humans are born with this innate tendency to want what isn't theirs. Um, and that this, this he calls mimetic desire. Okay, that's his, that's his fancy word for it. Um, this desire then grows within individuals and within nations um, and causes this thing called mimetic doubling, which we don't need to worry too much about, but this idea that actually rivals become very like one another in their rivalry. Um, until something erupts, until this explodes, whether it's between you know, Cain and Abel or whether it's between um, you know, Russia and America, as it were, um, that you get this mimetic, this gradual escalation of mimetic desire until you hit a crisis moment, which he calls the scandal on. Not to be confused with anything to do with the scandal on of the cross, although he confuses it a bit, but we won't go there. Okay, this next slide, please. And after you've had this crisis point, um, you get a temporary cessation of facilities. Things just simmer down a little bit, and order is restored within, within society. But what has happened at this point of scandal on is somebody has been made a scapegoat. Somebody or, some, or a group of people. 
has been made a scapegoat. So you get this idea of this simmering tension which gradually bubbles up and bubbles up and bubbles up and explodes. Somebody or a group of people pay the price and then somehow things calm down for a bit. Okay? Um, and he says that as societies see this cycle happening, they, that, that this, this becomes a paradigm for their behaviour and that this is a, that this is a conscious or un- most likely unconscious paradigm of behaviour within all societies, he would say. Um, and he traces that through the primitive myths right back to the sort of Babylonian myths through the, through the Bible stories um, and into our own societies. <clears throat> now, I don't want to um, suggest that I adopt Girard's um, thesis un, un, with, without reservation, as actually I wouldn't want to say about any of the, the paradigms I've been suggesting. Um, and I think one of the dangers that Girard has is he tries to fit everything neatly into that grid. Um, and uh, his, his, the way he looks at the cross is quite simplistic. So I, I sort of uh, I mention him with a, a little bit of caution, um, but he's got some really interesting things to say as well. So, um, next slide, please. So what he says is this. When this selection of the scapegoat is always the other. Okay? It's always the person who doesn't fit somehow. It's the handicapped one. It's the one with a stutter. It's the one with a different coloured skin. It's the Jew. It's the exile. It's the, it's, the, it's the one that lives on the outside of the village. It's the imbecile. It's always going to be somebody who doesn't quite fit. And this, this violence erupts upon that person or group of peoples. <coughs> And somehow that, their death brings a restoration of order to that society and, and, and a, um, uh, almost a catharsis of, of the violence. Um, which sounds quite like harem, doesn't it? I think. Now it's interesting that as he's traced this through a number of um, primitive stories, um, including biblical stories, he hasn't picked it out. He hasn't picked the harem passages out, interestingly enough. The closest he gets to it is um, this um, verse from Deuteronomy 17, um, which gives instructions for the treatment of a blasphemer. And it says, The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to execute him, and the hands of all the people shall follow. So you shall root out the evil from your midst. And Girard says that the, this, um, you know, this expunging this blasphemer from the community is, is a replication of that, what he calls the founding murder, which is the murder of Abel. Um, he says it's a replication of the founding murder in order to purify the community of its evil. Um, so although he doesn't draw similarities with Harem, I think we could see them quite clearly. And if we think about Achan, do you remember we talked a lot about Achan last week? He was the one who, who stole what wasn't his when, when they went into Jericho. He ends up being both stoned and burned. Um, is Achan a victim by which that society restores its equilibrium. In, in some senses, this model, I think, has some overlap with Susan Nidditch's model, with the idea of sacrifice. It's, 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 it's different nuance to it, but it's got some similar idea of the, the community selecting somebody to, as it were, to, to pay the price, to, to, to calm things down. It's also got a bit of common ground with the Philip Stern's work with Order Out of Chaos, this idea of this chaotic system and an act which then suppresses, which calms that chaos. So it's got a bit of overlap with some of the other models we've looked at, I think. And again, I don't commend it to you without reservation, but I think there's some interesting stuff there. And I think seeing that as a, as a lens for Hiren might add a little to our understanding of it. 
absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Although you do wonder whether he was the only one. <laughs> but the Bible doesn't give, give, us, give us any suggestion otherwise, so yes, absolutely. Okay, so just a few words on Girard. Does that make sense? I lost anyone yet. Good. Okay, and the, the fourth, the fifth, rather, of the, uh, the theological paradigms is a, is a very um, recent one, published by this chap called Hyundai Park. I was very pleased to find his photograph on the internet. He uh, published it in, oh, I don't remember, five or six years ago, I think, in his PhD thesis. And what he's done, among other things, is he's taken a really careful look at all the instances of harem in the Old Testament. And he's tried to come up with a categorization of them. He thinks that they're not uniform, they're not all the same. And so he's asked this question of, was this, was this incident um, sort of legally mandatory? Was it something that the community had to do? Or was it a voluntary act? Um, now, this is something we've talked about already, isn't it? Was the thing that was committed to Harem, was it holy or an abomination? And could the thing or person um, designated for Harem be redeemed? And he looks very carefully at, um, at all the passages, actually. And I'm just going to give you a, a little snippet of, of his findings. So he says that there are two categories of harem. And one of them is mandatory harem. Okay. And this would be um, one of the places where the law of mandatory harem is set out in Deuteronomy 7. And I think we read this last week. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy... And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. I just want to stop for a second. Those seven nations are repeated, that, that list of seven nations with minor variations is repeated a significant number of times in these early few, cha- few uh, books of the Bible. And they're very much the, well... These are the nations which God designates as harem. And some of the other nations around, for example, Moab, are not designated as harem. So, it, so this is where we see these, these seven nations continuing. Um, so when you enter and occupy these lands, when, you clear, when the Lord of God clears away these nations from among you, these seven nations, mightier and more numerous than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. So Park says that there is this entity called mandatory harem. And it is um, things, or peop- mostly people actually, but um, it is where God has mandated it, either by this sort of blanket law, okay, when you, when you meet a Gergeshite, you will harem him, basically, okay, or occasionally by specific instances where God specifically says, you will, you know, you will go to war and you will utterly destroy this town. So either by um, sort of blanket edict or by specific command where God, um, where God commands the harem. He says this is what is called mandatory harem. Now what he observes then about mandatory harem is, first of all, that the thing that is designated harem is an abomination. Okay? It is something unclean, unholy to be destroyed. It is, yeah... Um, and the other thing about it is that you can be redeemed from mandatory harem. Okay, and we'll look at an example of that in a minute. By contrast, something that is something that is designated harem, there is there is provision for that person or thing to be redeemed out of harem. 
Now, by contrast, we have um, voluntary harem. So voluntary harem is when somebody says, a bit like that war vow we talked about last week, you know, if you will give this town into my hand, I will harem it for you. Okay. So when somebody, of their own initiative, decides that they're going to make a, designate something harem, um, as in this law. So this is from Leviticus. How, and here we're using the word, I've, I've left the word harem untranslated to try and hopefully make it clearer, but it's being used both as a noun and a verb here, hopefully clearly. However, every harem noun, which a man has made harem to the Lord, out of all that belongs to him, from man or beast or a field he possesses, it shall not be sold and it shall not be redeemed. Everything that is harem is most holy to the Lord. Every harem man that is made harem, he shall not be ransomed from death, he shall be killed. So here we start seeing some stuff that's quite different from what Parker said about mandatory harem, don't we? So first of all, we see that this is, that this is, some, this is a person's initiative. Okay. Secondly, that it is not an abomination. It is most holy. Yeah. Um, something else. Yes, and it may not be ransomed. Okay. There is no provision for something which has been designated harem by a human being to be ransomed. And uh, you were, I don't suppose you'll remember this proverb. It's an obscure little proverb in the book of Proverbs. Um, it's in uh, chapter 20. It says, it's a snare for a man to babble, it is holy, and afterwards to consider his vow. So this idea of, you know, what you have said you will give to God, you must see through. That makes sense. So let's look at an example. Um, and he does lots of work on this, but here's, here's one example which I think um, is... is Quite interesting. And this is good old Jericho again. Um, now, if we read the account of Jericho, what we find out, first of all, is that by the, that blanket instruction we just read from Deuteronomy 7, the people of Jericho were designated mandatory harem. Okay. But the livestock and the spoil of Jericho are not covered by that. And they are designated harem by Joshua. Okay, so you've got the city. The people are mandatory harem, but the stuff is voluntary harem. With me? Right. Rahab. So she is mandatory harem because she's a resident. Okay, and what happens? She is redeemed. Yeah? Interestingly, through an act of faith, she is redeemed. Now, Achan, what has Achan stolen? Stuff. So he's stolen what is voluntary harem, and that may not be redeemed. And so as a result, sorry? Absolutely. So he becomes identified with that, and so he becomes harem himself. Does that make sense? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, and hopefully not just of academic interest, as I'm, I'm hoping I can convince you shortly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've looked quite carefully at this, and I've gone, I think most of you last week had picked up a grid of all the uh, instances of harem in the Bible, which I'm sure you've read and committed to heart. Um, <laughs> you brought it with you. <laughs> um, I, I think it's not quite as simple as Park says, actually. I think there are instances where things seem a little more blurred than that. But if we just have the next slide, please. Um, so basically, mandatory harem 
you can be redeemed. What is mandatory for them is an abomination and it is destroyed. Okay? And this is something I haven't just said now. Voluntary harem may not be redeemed. It is most holy and it is brought into the temple. That is the usual outcome of what is mandatory harem. It is not destroyed, but it is brought into the sanctuary. And that's significant as well. As again, as I said, not quite as clear-cut as that, I think, when you look through. But, but I think there's a lot in it, actually. And I think it's, it's quite useful. So with, um, no, the Ninevites, uh, first of all, they're not one of those seven nations. Um, now, God says, certainly says he will destroy them, but he doesn't, there's no suggestion that's going to be by a human agent, um, and Harem isn't used. So that's the judgment of God, much more like the judgment of God upon Israel itself and, and so on. There's a the very interesting passage. Do you remember the, um, that nation that comes suing for peace to Joshua? Um, and they, they're mouldy bread and so on. Do you remember that story? And Joshua doesn't consult God and says, yes, yes, that's fine. And, and they should have been harem because they were one of those seven nations and they should have been designated harem. And it's interesting to ponder of whether they were, in a sense, redeemed from being mandatory harem by their act of faith, in a sense, if they came you know, suing, to, 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 suing for peace. Interesting to speculate. You can take that all sorts of places, but um, I'll let you do that at home. So the, the big question, which Phil asked last week, and of course we need to go on to, does Hiram come into the New Testament? Can we follow these strands? Is there, does it all stop, or is there some sense of this having some meaning um, ongoing into the New Testament? The first question, of course, to look at um, is, is there any linguistic continuity? Do we find the word Hiram or its equivalent in the, in the New Testament? Now, the way to go about that is to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint or the LXX, and to look at the words that the translators there, who, who were translating very, very early, to the words, the Greek words that they have used to translate cherem, and to see how those are used in the New Testament. And again and again and again, when um, New Testament writers want to echo something in the Old Testament, we'll find that they're using the Septuagint word. Okay, so a very good place to start. There are five, I'm not going to give you the, the, the Greek details, because only Rob will be interested, probably. <laughs> um, there are five words used in the LXX exclusively for Hiram. Um, three of them are used very generally in the New Testament. One of them isn't used at all. And the fifth is only used um, in, in an eschatological concept, context in terms of sort of end times stuff. Um, there is one other word that is used a lot for Hiram, but also for other stuff in the Old Testament, and that's apolumi. Um, and the use of that is very, very broad in the New Testament, and we can't really infer anything from that. <coughs> So I, much as I would love to, I can't persuade myself of any linguistic continuity um, into the New Testament. But, um, but there's, there's a lot more to say, I think. And let me give you an example. The book of Mark, um, one, of the, one of the, and we're all about to study Mark, aren't we? So uh, this, is, this is topical. Um, one of the, the things that comes up again and again and again in Mark is the word hodos, which means way. Okay. Now that is a word that is very, very important for, in the LXX for the exodus and the conquest. Okay. So Mark um, talks about Jesus being on the way. And this, is, this for, for Mark's readers would have had echoes of, oh, just like Israel was on the way. Okay. When Jesus goes up the mountain and is transfigured, there's a bit of an echo there of the revelation of God, of course, on Mount Sinai. Okay. Um, 
Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in Mark is cast in terms that would have been quite reminiscent for its original readers as paralleling the Israelite exodus, crossing the Jordan, and the conquest of Canaan. This is, if you like, the victory march of the divine warrior, casting down every obstacle as he makes his triumphant way to Zion. Just think about that for a minute, though. Where's Cherem in that? That's the culmination, isn't it? That's the culmination of Israel's triumph as they make their way out of Egypt, across the, uh, across the Dead Sea, um, over the Jordan, into, um, into Canaan. And the culmination of that is when they slay their enemies. Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And the culmination of that is the cross. Now, that's why you're selecting Mark rather than the other Gospels, given that Mark was written for Gentiles, as I understand it, and therefore the intention in what you're saying might be to show the limitations of him to, as it were, a new breed of person, in other words, a non-Jewish background person. Two questions, really. Uh, yes. Select Mark, and what was the intention by assuming that Yes, I mean, I think I think when we read things that are written for Gentiles, in um, quite often they are written with a high expectation of what they would understand from Israel's history, um, which I think is quite striking. Um, I've chosen Mark because this particular word "hodos" is very clear, and, and there's there's quite I think good evidence that Mark's got this in his mind as he's writing it. Um, there's quite a lot of interesting overlap with Luke as well. I could have chosen some stuff there, so I've just plucked Mark out um, for the sake of one example here. Um, next slide. No, that slide. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Um, so, if we remind ourselves that Cherem is the culmination of holy war, it doesn't seem fanciful to me to see some parallel between Cherem and the cross. Um, one of the things about holy war in the Old Testament one of the, and we haven't really talked about holy war because Cherem is just a little bit of this bigger concept of holy war but one of the things about holy war in the Old Testament is that God acts for his people um, without their assistance he as it were bears his right arm and gets on with it okay. um, and of course that is what God is doing at the cross he's acting for his people without their assistance. So, as we start to think about this, um, I think there are some parallels, there's some interesting things going on. And what I want to do is I want to ask the question now, can we see a strand of thought that comes through the Old Testament, including Cherem, and ends up at the cross? Can we see that? And I'd like to suggest that there are some. In fact, I'd like to suggest there are five, because we've just had five theological interpretations of Cherem. And so here's number one, which I don't think is very controversial. Could somebody look up Romans 8, verse 3 for me? Thank you, Jill. Just while Jill's finding that, um, there is a, this concept in the... In, there's this thing called biblical, biblical theology. Biblical theologians like to see um, what we call trajectories of thought. So like to say, oh, look, there's this idea of sacrifice, 
starts off perhaps with Cain and Abel, you know, continues, you've got this idea with, with um, Abraham and Isaac and, you know, oh, look, we've got this sacrificial system set up with the, with the tabernacle and the temple and then we've got some interesting developments of thoughts around the prophets and what sacrifice is all about and then, oh, we've got a cross going, you know. Theologians like to trace these things through and they call them trajectories, okay, and, and see the unfolding thought and, and how they then um, enrich our understanding of what's going on in the New Testament. So this is what we're following here. So let's just hear this from Romans 8. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in in sinful man. Thank you got more than one thought there actually but this last phrase he condemned sin in sinful man and I could have as you know chosen many different places we could have looked at this but the idea of judgment which we looked at last week the idea of cherem ju- being judgment on sinful nations okay and <clears throat> um, of course Paul would say we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory we all stand under God's condemnation and the cross is the place where that judgment is enacted Upon Jesus. The cross is the place where cherem happens, if you like. The cross is the place where the judgment of God is seen most fully, isn't it? So understanding cherem as judgment for sin fits in with something we know about Jesus and something we know about the cross. Probably isn't a great surprise, that one. Let's look at the next one. Okay, thank you. So the next one, Susan Nidditch's idea of sacrifice. Now, again, we, we all think of the cross as sacrifice a lot, don't we? Um, can we just, we, we'll leave the Hebrews 9 one, because that's a whole chapter about it, really. But, um, Elaine, have you got the John 19 one there? Is that what you're looking up? Oh, sorry. <laughs> and, Jeffrey, do you want to read the John 1 one for us? Thank you. John 19:14. Thank you. It's now about noon of the day of preparation for Passover, and Pilate said to the people, "Here is your king." Thank you. Yes, it's the idea. It's the linking of the Passover idea. Okay, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb with with the cross. And John 1:29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, "Look." The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you. So again, could have found many, many places where the idea of the cross as sacrifice um, is shown. So does Cherem enrich our understanding of the cross in this sense? Well, one suggestion, and at this point I'd like to say we are we're off piste now. Okay, I've been up, to, up till up till two or three slides ago. I've been giving other people's thoughts. This is, this is me, okay, so take it, or lo- take it or leave it, really, but this, yeah. Um, what Cherem as sacrifice gives us is it gives us a paradigm for human sacrifice. And it's the only place, really, that we have any concept of human sacrifice. At cross. Well, at the cross we see a human sacrifice, and what we, what we grow up saying is, okay, well, this sacrifice of lambs are, are, is the paradigm for the cross, which, of course, it is, absolutely. But I'm saying that if, when we understand cherem as sacrifice as well, it, it, it fleshes that out a little bit even more because we see, actually, there's human sacrifice going on there, maybe. 
And that perhaps helps us to think, well, maybe we see then how a human could be sacrificed. I can see some really dubious expressions, so shall we move on? (laughs) Okay, here's the next one. Um, Philip Stern's idea of victory and recreation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, when we think about the cross. The, uh, the Gospel of John, um, as, as you'll probably know, you know, the, the very first, John's prologue, in the beginning was the word. This is, this is cast in terms that are meant to remind us of Genesis 1. Okay, and the whole of John is, um, well, one of the big themes in John is this idea of new creation, of, of creation is, is, uh, is, is being, is, is starting all over again at the cross. Um, when we, um, when we see the resurrection of Jesus, we're told twice in just a short passage that this was the first day of the week. He wants us to be very, very clear. There's something new creational going on at the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the Son of God rested in the tomb on the seventh day and is raised on the first day. Mary comes to the tomb while it's dark and discovers the new light and life which has defeated the darkness. Okay, this is very, very strong language in John. Um, let's just look up these these other ones quickly. He's got a Bible. James, could you look up 2 Corinthians 5.17? And brilliant, Phil. And it's got a Bible. Richard, could you look at the last one first? Thank you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Thank you. John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Thank you, so that was what I was just talking about, and Colossians 2. Uh, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, we made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Thank you. So, two important themes here. The theme of new creation, which starts at the cross, and the theme of the cross as being the place where God triumphs over his enemies, what we called the Christus Victor um, model of the atonement. Okay. And both of these, I think, I hope I can persuade you, are clearly in a direct trajectory from this idea of Cherem being order out of chaos and establishing a new creation. And I, again, I think, I think there's more going on. It's not just Cherem we see it. We've, I, last week I was talking about, um, about the, uh, the Exodus being a creational event, um, Jericho itself being the idea of a creational event. This is something that th- these cycles are happening, and they're there, I would suggest, so that when we see it, par excellence at the cross we go of course this is how God works isn't it so I suggest that order out of chaos suppression of evil death conquering of God's enemies and new creation are in a direct line of the thought that is going on behind Cherem according to Philip Stern what about René Girard scapegoating Somebody look up uh, John 11.50 for me. I think Louise is going to read us this one, apparently. 
We do not know that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Thank you. The words of Caiaphas, of course. Um, now, Girard does a lot of work um, around the cross and says that the cross is the place where you've got the... Uh, where this whole scapegoating idea is, is finally... Finally? I'm not sure who would say finally, but is, is, is paradigmatically turned on its head because you've got a willing victim. But, um, and, and I think he takes it too far. I think he would, he would want to cast out all the other models of the cross, um, which I don't think we, we have permission to do. Um, if we take the Bible seriously. But nonetheless, I think there's a very clear suggestion that there is scapegoating going on at the cross. Um, And what Girard offers us is a hermeneutic of the victim. Um, He says, oh no, someone else says about him, he says, there is within the Bible a thread of texts, many of which have been identified by Girard, which take the perspective of the victim for their own. This thread of texts, which would include some of the Cherem passages and supremely the cross, invite us to read from the perspective of the victim. And that perhaps is a, a different angle to take on the whole matter. Mm. So the first part is quote, the second part is me. There is within the Bible a thread of texts, many of which have been identified by Girard, which take the perspective of the victim for their own. And I just add that this thread of text, which would include some of the Cherem passages, although he doesn't identify them, and supremely the cross, invite us to read these texts from the perspective of the victim. Does that make sense? I can see how Jesus is volunteering for them, but I can't see how he's mandatory. We'll come to that. <laughs> That's a really good question. Okay, so if we look onto that last slide. Now, what um, Park says is he says Jesus is voluntary and mandatory harem. A sort of special sort of mandatory harem. Um, First of all, um, he says that Israel and hence all of us are mandatory harem because we are sinners under God's judgment and we deserve harem, if you like it. We deserve God's judgment. And so he says Jesus is, is redeeming. Remember, you can be redeemed from mandatory harem. Okay. That Jesus is redeeming us out of mandatory harem by himself becoming voluntary harem. And the sense in which he is mandatory harem is because he is under God's command to do so. If you see what I mean. <laughs> right. So we, Israel, and we are mandatory harem because we stand under God's judgment. Jesus redeems us out of mandatory harem. If you remember, you can be redeemed from mandatory harem by himself becoming voluntary harem. But he also can be seen of as being mandatory harem because he is under God's direct instruction and, and command. In fact, under God's judgment himself. Now then, here's what I want to tie together these threads. We've talked about harem, what is harem being an abomination, and we've talked about what is harem being most holy. What is Jesus on the cross? He's both, isn't he? We've also talked about harem, what is designated harem is destroyed, 
and what is designated harem is taken into the sanctuary. What happens to Jesus? Both. He's taken to the heavenly sanctuary by his ascension. Yeah. So Jesus is both destroyed. Abomination Abomination and most holy. Yes. The second thing is he is both. Dis- so the two outcomes for Cherem were that either you were dest- it was destroyed or it was taken into the sanctuary. And you see both happening. Now, uh, nowhere else do we see anything being blurring these boundaries in this way. But of course, Jesus is a paradigm breaker from beginning to end, isn't he? Um, and you know, we we see very clearly that Jesus is both um, God is both most um, most opposed to Jesus at the cross and most delighted with him at the cross at the same time. So I'd suggest that that the way these things these these points meet here may well be more than coincidence. You were saying about him being under God's instruction and that makes him mandatory for them. Yeah. Then how does JC have a free will fit into that then? Because he could have decided not to go to the cross and didn't he wrestle with that? He did. He absolutely did. But but nonetheless he was still under instruction. He wasn't under obligation, you might you know, he wasn't had his arm twisted, but he was under under direction uh, yeah I mean it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really uh, it's very hard to put it into words isn't it because it's such a subtle thing yeah so if we just put all those together um, my, my suggestion and I know that this I'm going to say this up front I know this is not going to make you go skipping home and think that Harem is okay and fine and, and that these passages do not present a problem anymore I know you're not going to feel that way um, but I would suggest that if we ask the question, which I either implicitly or explicitly asked at the beginning of the first session, which is, what are these passages there for? Why are we given them? What are, what, what, you know, whether they're real or fiction, actually, um, what are they there for? And I suggest that they are all, by whichever way we understand them, and I don't think these are necessarily contradictory, I think they enrich one another, just as we have to hold many things in tension. Um, I think they all can point us towards the cross and perhaps enrich our understanding of the atonement. But there's one more thing that I'd like to suggest. And that is, and you can only do this when you've done your hard work of going forwards, okay, but now we've done some hard work that we look backwards and we say, what can we say about Cherem if we look through the lens of the cross? And I would like to say these four things. God is commanding it. That as God decrees the judgment of the cross, as God decrees us all to be under God's judgment, God commands Cherem. And I don't think we can get away from that. What else is going on? God is at Cherem, I would suggest, forming a new creation in the same way that he is, well, in, 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 in small, what he is doing par excellence at the cross by his defeat of evil. Thirdly, 
um, that God is the recipient, he is the beneficiary of it, if we see it as sacrifice, just as he is the recipient, or perhaps not beneficiary of the cross, but you know, he is the recipient of the sacrifice that is made by Jesus at the cross. And finally, I think that Hyundai Park and René Girard would encourage us to say that God is also the victim. Just as he is the victim on the cross, that they would encourage us to say that at Cherem, God is also identifying with the victims. And there I... Well, yes, I mean, not, not in the same way that he is at the cross, but that he is, yeah. Yes, that if, um, if we go back to the... Go back, back. Yeah, if you go back, go back to that one, yes. So, with the scapegoating... Uh, we're encouraged to see these, these um, from the point of view of the victim, that Girard would say that the scapegoat is the means by which um, the means by which um, the, the, the evil is suppressed, the, the new creation comes about and, and all these things, um, then God is suffering it. As Jesus is suffering the cherem at the cross, that's what I'm trying to say, as Jesus is suffering cherem at the cross, so at the cross... God is decreeing cherem upon Jesus. Yes. God, but God is also suffering cherem, if, if, if you use the cherem paradigm. Does that make sense? So if we read that back, we say not only is God decreeing it, not only is God doing something new creational through it, not only is he being the recipient of the sacrifice, if you like, but he's also identifying with the victims. If, if we say that the cross is a lens for looking at cherem. I think it's more than that. I think it's because um, because scripture is profoundly written from the point of view of the victim again and again and again. And I think I think we miss that sometimes when we read these passages and and, and see triumphant Israel conquering over their enemies, and we forget that that actually God always aligns himself as well with those who are victims. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's... And actually, if you take it out of the political Israelite history and put it into the sort of language of Daniel and the sort of abomination of, des- of desolation of persecution by the Romans and something, that there is a strong sense of abomination and, and presumably sacrificing temple prestige um, that's not to do with the history of the Israelites facing backwards is it that, that's more foreshadowing of what Jesus is doing uh, in the New Testament because it seems to me that Daniel and the history of the Jews and, and the Maccabees has the sort of link between what Jesus is going to do. And I wondered whether ideas that 
Karen would be cut um, in the minds of some New Testament listeners when they look back just a few generations, not very many, mm. to, to the whole abomination issue as represented by the Romans and the sacrificial system in the temple and, and all those issues. Not to do with grabbing land yeah. and politics from the past, but very much what their grandparents were suffering from. Yeah. And of course, yes, of course, Israel, actually Israel is always the, the weaker power, except, you know, in these few instances of conquest, Israel is the weaker power, both in Egypt, Israel is, is you know, subjugated under, under Assyria and Babylon and Persia and, and absolutely and then under, under um, Antioch Epiphanes and, and then the Romans. So, yes, that whole history should encourage us to see that God is identifying himself with the victims, with, with the weak, with the powerless. I was trying yeah. to find a way justifying thinking that even on the cross this kind of thinking could still be in people's yes. minds and hearts and recent folk memories of Yes, I think if we need to want to delve in that well, we need to look at um, what they call the intertestamental literature. Um, so the stuff that's been written between the Old Testament and, and the times in the New Testament. Um, and Herem is, is actually falling out of use there at that stage, certainly the word is falling out of use it, it crops up a few times, but there's actually a sense of embarrassment when um, people like Philo and Josephus are writing, they're quite embarrassed about Harem, which is quite interesting although some of the, some of the themes may well be there, but certainly the, the, the word itself is starting to drop out of use but yeah, it's interesting and it is hugely complex and what we've done, so what we have done is we've looked at Harem itself, okay, just that word, hoping that looking at some of the subtleties of that can help us to understand a little bit more about the whole idea of the conquest, which is actually where our our issue lies more with this whole idea of conquest and annihilation than with just that one word. But I've limited myself to that one word because, you know, that's that's, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? I know I haven't provided complete answers. I said at the outset I wouldn't provide complete answers. I hope I haven't confused people further. Um, I, think it's, I think it's subtle and rich, and there's more to say than we often see. Um, and that's sort of where I rest my case, my lad. But I'm very happy to uh, do my best to field questions. Well, why don't we pray, and then those who want to go can go, and those who want to pin me to the wall and stone me can do that. (laughs) Say again what I said at the very beginning um, of last time. God is good, and we take everything we read, we know God is good. And when we, don't, when we read stuff we don't understand, when we read stuff that troubles us, we need to hold by faith to what we know, that God is good, that God shows himself most fully at the cross. Um, sometimes we end up, in fact often, we end up saying, I just don't understand, this is too big for my tiny brain, um, but I know that God is good, I trust that God is good, because I have seen him at the cross. So, don't go away upset and troubled and 
more disturbed than you came in, please. Um, and come and talk to me or someone else if I have upset or disturbed or troubled anyone, okay? Because that is the last thing we want to do is that. Okay, thank you. Yes. It gives the impression it's ongoing command. God is commanding it. I would like to say that God commanded it in the Old Testament, but it's not ongoing. Oh no, 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 absolutely. Oh, sorry, no. Yes, sorry, that was just grammar. Didn't mean that at all. God, no, but. Did but some people might say, you know the way Spain conquered the Americas caused conversion of Christianity yeah. in that model. Absolutely, and there's been a lot of... Absolutely, no, thank you for that. By other religions as well, Spain. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I certainly didn't mean that. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. <laughs> no, no. Quite right, quite right.